0: Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for rain, for the cooler weather for a time, and for the chance to study your word. Guide us by your spirit tonight, as you do every night we've come. Give us a continued appreciation for the wisdom and majesty and and remarkable uh, forethought, Father, that is evident in your design of the tabernacle and in the law itself. Let us appreciate it the way it needs to be understood and appreciated, Father, as a beautiful beacon. Shining into the world with Christ at the center of it all. And let us take what we learn and use it to accomplish the very same end in our day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the final part of the tabernacle's design and, and examination of the furnishings. We do that tonight. Even though we're still looking at the tabernacle, in reality, last week we transitioned to an extent out of the tabernacle and really into a conversation about the priesthood, because if you remember in chapter 28 last week, we started looking at the priestly garb, and even before that, we were looking at how they work at the altar. And then today, we're going to move ahead, focusing on the priest's service within the tabernacle and the consecration of the priesthood. So the priesthood and the tabernacle go hand in hand. One has a purpose only in that it works within the other. So that's why they're so closely linked. Now, in chapters 29 and 30 tonight, we're going to study the consecration of the priesthood, as I said. And we're going to look at the two remaining pieces of furniture which we have not yet studied in the design of the tabernacle. The altar of incense and the bronze or brass laver. And they've been saved because they are so closely associated with the role in the service of the priests. Therefore, they're set aside and they're addressed as part of the discussion of the priestly duties. And as we look forward, even past tonight, into chapter 31, 32, 33, 34, We're going to have a chance to see a really fascinating picture. Now, I'm not going to let you know tonight what that is because it comes up later. I'm letting you know it's coming, though, because I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a picture that connects Genesis with Exodus in a unique way. And when we see what happens after the Jews have found Moses disappearing on the mountain and not returning, they think, and after they have their little party at the base of the mountain and all that comes from that, we'll be able to stand back looking at the whole scene and what's transpired in Exodus and compare it. Genesis in a very unique way. So we're going to do that as we get toward those chapters. When we do that, you're going to find that that picture also goes a long way to explaining the significance of all that we've been studying in Exodus since they left Egypt. Speaking of those chapters, chapters 32 and 33 and 34 get us back into the narrative of the story of Exodus, something we've been out of now for a little while because we've been studying the tabernacle. So that comes back up. Let's go to chapter 29. Let's study the consecration of the priests. Now, the first 37 verses of this chapter are the consecration procedure or ritual. And when you have such a long section of scripture, I'm not going to read it all as one section. We're going to divide it up, but it's all one piece. And so when you have something of that size, it's always helpful to start with a summary so that you get a sense even in the beginning of where we're going. So I want to give a quick summary of what you're going to read now, what we're going to study in chapter 29 as it relates to this consecration procedure. First, God is establishing a ceremony for the priests of Israel, for Aaron, for his sons, meaning for the descendants of Aaron who will perform as priests. So this consecration ceremony or ritual we're going to study was accomplished for each new generation of priests that came along and met their qualifications for duty. When they reached the appointed age of service, they were consecrated in this way. So this ceremony is the one which set them apart for service to the Lord. That's what the word consecration means. The next thing we're going to read will be the details of that process. And the details of that process consist of three parts. First, the priests are ritually cleaned and dressed in their priestly garbs, and then anointed with oil. Secondly, the sacrifices are made on their behalf to remove sin and to prepare them to serve the Lord in holiness. So then we're going to look at the sacrifices. Thirdly, the priests make a wave offering to the Lord, and we'll discuss what that is, a wave offering of meat and bread and oil. Most of the offering that they wave is actually then burned as a thanks offering to the Lord following the wave, But then a small portion of it is retained and allowed to be the portion that the priests will have. They consume this in front of the tent of the meeting. Then, finally, after this, the ceremony is repeated for seven days to complete the overall consecration. So they do this on seven successive days. The ceremony is repeated for each new generation, as I mentioned already, throughout the history of the tabernacle and into the period of the temple as well. This is what we're about to go study. Now, this ceremony is also a beautiful picture of another kind of consecration. And we're going to examine that picture as well as we go through the study of this procedure. And it's one of the better pictures you'll find in the study of the tabernacle and in the study of Exodus. And it's one of the lesser known. And so I think you're gonna enjoy looking at it with me and discovering it with me. It's a picture of you in the text. So we're gonna look at the details of it, beginning with the first section. First section runs verses 1 through 9 of chapter 29. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breast piece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood for a perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. The chapter records God giving Moses the instructions while Moses stands with God at the top of the mountain. So all of these instructions that we're reading are instructions God was delivering to Moses while Moses was up on the mountain. But the actual carrying out of these instructions is recorded again in Leviticus chapter 8. So if you go to Leviticus chapter 8, you'll see the actual description Moses gives us of how this took place. Well, it takes place exactly the way it's described here. The first verses of the chapter, the ones we just read, verses 1 through 9, describe the material. So at the very beginning of this section, it's sort of a laundry list. Go get all of these ingredients, and then we'll come back and we'll use them all. And the oil and the clothing of the priests will be the key items that are used in this first section. Moses begins with Aaron and his sons and tells them, go to the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Now, the doorway of the tent of the meeting is pretty easy to understand. It's that section right about there. Not a very big space. So we have a few guys standing, and in this case, it's Aaron and just a few sons, standing in that little space created there at the front of the tent. And as they stand in the entrance there, What they are signifying by their standing there is they are about to enter service before God. And as they come to this doorway, they are on the threshold of entering into service for God in his holy place. And so in this moment now, they become consecrated. They go through the process after the priests are in the doorway. First thing we hear is they are washed. Now, this is not ordinary bathing, but a ritual washing intended to teach a point. The person who serves God must be spiritually clean, and this washing is intended to demonstrate that. And to picture God's cleansing of these men, he demands that they wash physically in a public way. So their spiritual cleansing is pictured by this physical cleansing, which is ritualistic. So the first step of priestly service was to be cleansed. Having been cleansed, they were then to move forward to the next step. Secondly, the priests had to put on their garb, their Priestly garments, which the Lord had prescribed for them for their service. The high priest Aaron, he first is clothed, followed by the other priests. Now, what does this clothing mean? What's its importance? Well, it designates them as priests. It sets them apart like any uniform would. By the simple appearance now of these men, anyone in Israel can look upon them and know you are priests. You have been set apart or consecrated to serve God. So before these men could serve the living God, they had to assume a new identity. And their new identity now was priest. And that appearance communicated that new identity. And it signified that they had been given a calling. And that their calling now was to serve in God's house. Finally, the high priest was anointed, we're told, with oil. Anointing is simply the process of putting oil or pouring oil on the head of someone, on the very top, and letting it just run down their head onto their face, and so on. Oil in this context is always a symbol of God's spirit, God's empowerment, God's authority being transferred to this person for the purpose of serving God in some respect. Priests, as we just saw, are anointed, but so are prophets in Scripture. And so were the kings of Israel in Scripture. You remember when Samuel came to anoint David in David's house. So before these men could serve in God's house, There had to be some official anointing, which again signifies that God has established them in that service. With that authorization, they can now serve. And as we read at the very end of that passage, they will serve for a lifetime perpetually. So this anointing was a permanent anointing. They serve for life. Now, all of what I just read can be seen as pictures of something that is true for us today Pictures of the believer today. The priesthood of Israel is itself a picture of the Christian New Testament believer. And so we're going to examine all of the details of the priesthood as it relates to that picture. And you can begin to see them, I think, already. For example, who is the priest of today in God's house? Now, it might be tempting for some, particularly if they hadn't studied this in Scripture, of course, to make a comparison between the ceremony that's taking place here in Exodus 29 and the kinds of rituals or ceremonies that we commonly practice today to ordain Christian clergy. In other words, we might be tempted to think that the picture that's being drawn between the priesthood and today is a picture limited to clergy or leadership in the church rather than to laity or the church as a whole. But if we make that conclusion... We are actually committing an age-old error that Jesus himself in Revelation called a heresy, the Nicolaitan heresy. And the Nicolaitan heresy suggests that there is a Christian priesthood or clergy that is set apart or distinct from the everyday ordinary Christian or laity. The idea of clergy and laity, Jesus says, is heresy. He says, I hate it in Revelation. Instead of that misnomer, that mistaken view of the church, the Bible gives us a different view of the priesthood. The Bible says all believers are priests in the church. First Peter gives it to us most clearly. He calls those who read his letter who are the believer. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter two nine. All believers are consecrated priests of Jesus, which means that the comparison that we're supposed to make between Exodus 29 and our world today is between the priesthood of Israel that was established under the law and the priesthood of every believer who has faith in Christ today. So, before the priests could serve in God's house, they had to be cleansed spiritually, and so it is with us. Before we can serve the living God, we must be cleansed spiritually, and the cleansing or the washing away of our sins is accomplished in what manner? By faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, our faith is the necessary prerequisite for any form of service as priest. Entrance into the priesthood begins with an entrance into the house of God. We have to stand at the tent of meeting, so to speak. And remember, who was allowed to enter into the tabernacle compound? Who could enter into that? Only the Jews, or we might say only God's called people. Only those he has called. Meaning, only the believer. So you have to be a believer. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11:6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So we have to be washed in the sense that we are spiritually renewed by the Spirit. We are believers. And the instrument of that washing for us or that cleansing is the Holy Spirit. Titus three five tells us, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing in the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the priests were washed. We've been washed. Secondly, we must be clothed properly for service. The priesthood had to wear their appointed garments. And all believers must be clothed as well. Believers are clothed in a spiritual sense by Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Our clothing, meaning our identity, is now Christian. For whatever it was before, we are now in a new identity, clothed in Christ in that sense. And as that clothing creates our new identity, we now walk in that new identity, in his righteousness and according to his example. How do you think the priests of Israel carried themselves the moment after they walked out in their new garb? Have you ever seen a brand new military recruit after he puts the uniform on for the first time? Do you think maybe they walked a little taller? Do you think they walked perhaps with a greater sense of burden and responsibility? Do you think they may have thought twice about how they conducted themselves in public view of the other Jews of Israel, knowing that they now had this uniform on that represented their consecration to serve the Lord? I certainly hope they did. Likewise, we are called to walk differently now that we have put on Christ. He says in Romans 13:13, 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Think of yourself now in the way that the priest did as having put on Christ and now walk out of the room or everywhere you go, mindful of the fact that you represent him and that that has to change What we do. Finally, like they, we have to be anointed for service just as the priests were anointed for service. Second Corinthians one, twenty one and twenty two. Paul says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and that anointing accomplishes for us what their ritual anointing symbolized for them. It empowers us for the serving of the living God in his holy place. The power for our service is given to us by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And our service to the Lord is not a matter of our personal ability. It's not a matter of careful planning. It's really not even a matter of our efforts. The power for our service is entirely given to us by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and discipline. Our efforts are not meaningless because certainly we must labor with the spirit or else we risk grieving the spirit. And this anointing is given to us so that we will have an opportunity to do that very thing. But it is not given to us to make us feel important, to inflame our pride, to give us some sense of greater self-worth. Like the priests in the tabernacle, the anointing of God is intended to empower us to serve God's people in God's house. And Need I say what God's house is for us, the body of Christ, the church itself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the good of the body. The gifts of the Spirit come with that anointing. They are the tools that we wield in service to God. And we've been consecrated by the Spirit, set apart by that anointing to be Christ's servants. So... By faith in Christ, we are commissioned into the priestly service of God, clothed with Christ and empowered by the Spirit. Now, before you can serve to the fullest, there are some steps that the priesthood had to take. They have been consecrated with these steps we've read about, but now they have to take some additional steps before they're prepared or ready for their service. We study that now in the next section of chapter 29, verses 10 through 21. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. You shall slaughter the bull before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and you shall pour out all the blood at the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and offer them up in smoke on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse... You shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. You shall also take the one ram and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall slaughter the ram and shall take its blood and sprinkle it around the altar. And then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head. And you shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma an offering by fire to the Lord. Then you shall take the other ram and Aaron, and his son, shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall slaughter the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the lobes of his son's right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and sprinkle the rest of the blood around on the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his son's garments with him. So he and his garments shall be consecrated as well as his son's and his son's garments with him. So in this second section, you have this series of sacrifices. And in that you have a bull, and then you have the two rams sacrificed, all of them on the altar. Before the animals are sacrificed, in every case, you notice the priests, they lay their hands on the animal before it's put to death at the altar. Now that act of the priests putting their hands on the animal before it dies symbolizes the priests transferring their sin to these innocent substitutes. So symbolically, the priests are demonstrating publicly that they are sinful, that they are unworthy in their capacity of priest. But yet the Lord has made an accommodation for the priests to serve through these sacrifices. And now we know these animals were not the means of God's forgiveness for these men, but they were representative of the forgiveness of God, and of how it would be provided through Christ. Let's look at each of these individually. The bull was the largest animal of the group, and bulls are big animals. This is a large animal. So only the fat surrounding the internal organs and the kidneys and the liver are actually offered on the fire of the altar. The rest of the animal is not burned there. That offering of just those parts was symbolic of an act of public confession by the priest. They had already laid their hands on this animal. They had publicly confessed, in a sense, their sin. It had been transferred symbolically to the animal. Then it's burned up. When they placed their hands on the animal, they were saying that they knew they were unworthy to serve. They were indicating to God's people that they recognized their own sinfulness and that the blood of the bull is being used to anoint the horns of the altar and the rest is being poured out on the base in accordance with sacrificial law, the way God had already proclaimed that it would be done. All of these steps are picturing that death is required for sin. Now, that's not new, but bulls are used in the sacrificial system as a picture of sin condemned, of sin condemned. The rest of the bull, for example, has been taken outside the camp and burned in a sin offering somewhere outside the camp. Burning something outside the camp in Scripture is always a picture of hell, of the place of burning, of Gehenna, in the case of the city of Jerusalem, and of the damnation that will come upon those who experience eternal judgment. So the bull's disposition speaks to death for sin followed by judgment. So this sacrifice provides a visceral picture of the priests sending the bull to judgment in their own place for their sin. So the priests created another picture for us, a picture of us putting away sin in our lives as well. The obligation of the priesthood, of service in the priesthood, begins with the priest acknowledging their own sin through confession. James tells us this in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The priests did through this ceremony a ritualistic personal confession followed by a substitute receiving the judgment for their sin. And in the New Testament picture that it creates, our priesthood requires that we serve in a continual Mindset of confessing our sin making clear we recognize we are not worthy for service by our own merit We practice personal humility and transparency before God and before God's people It restrains pride and it encourages repentance Then having confessed sin, we then send the sin outside the camp We put it away. We burn it up. We set it aside the priestly duty requires that we set sin aside. We put it away, not only for our own sake, but as an example to the rest of God's people. Hebrews 12:1 says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. Moving back to Exodus. Following the bull, a ram is sacrificed, the first ram. Now, this ram is used as an atoning sacrifice. While the bull was a picture of sin judged, this ram is killed and the blood is used to cleanse the altar from that bull offering. The blood is sprinkled around the altar and then this entire animal is burned on the altar. So now the ram is completely consumed by the fire of the altar. And the rising smoke, we read is said to be a soothing aroma, an offering to the Lord. Now, the Lord is not soothed simply at the prospect of an innocent animal dying. Moses is saying that the Lord has been satisfied by the priest's willingness to apply the law obediently. By their obedience to his word, he is soothed according to that obedience. So while the bull took the judgment, the ram is the atonement. The picture created for us in the church by this second animal, by the ram, is that of our total commitment in serving the Lord. The priests under the law dedicated, you notice, the entire ram to the Lord in order to please the Lord. Nothing was held back. The whole ram was given. We today as priests do not show our commitment by taking something and sacrificing it on a fire to God such sacrifice is no longer required. Christ has satisfied that requirement for us today. So if that's true, how do we priests today then repeat what these priests did in this moment? How do we perform a sacrifice that demonstrates our willingness to follow and serve God with our whole heart, fully committed, in other words, to the work of God? Well, Paul addresses that, of course, in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, look, which is your spiritual service of worship. Today, we are called as priests to place our entire body, our entire life on that fire, so to speak, and allow it to be consumed by our service to the Lord. The point is, of course, we hold nothing back, for that is what will please the Lord. Paul is using the language that invokes the priesthood serving God. And he's doing so intentionally to draw that comparison. Next, the second ram is sacrificed. The blood of this ram, we're told, is used to cleanse the priests themselves. You notice some of the blood was placed on the priest's right earlobe and then on the right thumbs and then on the right big toe. Now, the right side of anything is always the side of honor and authority. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So the reason it's the right side is to emphasize honor and authority. And then it says earlobe, thumb, and toe. And each part of the body here carries a spiritual significance. The ear represents the priest's responsibility to hear the instructions of God, to hearken to the Word of God. The hand symbolizes the priest's discharge of their duties in their roles as priests, and to do so with diligence, to do the work of the priesthood with diligence. And the foot was anointed or was marked with blood because priests are to walk in an upright manner and serve in holiness within the tabernacle. This is all to remind the priest of their call of duty and service to God. Finally, that blood we read was sprinkled on their garments and the, the scripture said it was to consecrate them by that blood. Remember, the word means to set them apart By sacrifice, this ram reminds the priests of the church, you and I, to serve in the same manner that the priests of the Levitical priesthood were required to serve. The ram died to remind the priests to hear God, serve God and walk with God. And by the blood that was sprinkled upon them, the priests had this visible reminder on their bodies that the Lord was going to hold them accountable for that service. By the blood of the ram, these men would be called to account by the quality of their service. And as priests today, we will be called to account for our service by the blood of Christ. The blood that has saved us and called us. Are we living in a way that is worthy or in keeping with the blood that saved us? Scripture tells us that priests who are commissioned by blood to serve God will be judged by the one who commissioned us. Hebrews 9.13 tells us, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkle those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the blood of Christ was the means by which We have been cleansed, our conscience cleansed, so that we will cease doing dead works, which is a way of saying we'll cease serving ourselves, serving our flesh, serving the world, and we will begin serving him in whatever capacity he calls us. That is the second ram. So as priests today, we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ for the purpose of serving the living God. This, I think, is one of the most underutilized opportunities in preaching in the modern church. We spend some time, I hope, talking about being saved, about the blood, but we don't spend, I think, enough time talking about the obligations that come with our salvation, which is to serve God. My favorite way of saying that is you were not saved for your own sake. God didn't need you in heaven in order for it to be heaven. He saved us so that we would serve him. And that service will be judged. And the standards are whether we listen to his word whether we acted according to what we have heard and whether we walked in the Spirit. Just as those priests were reminded by the blood on those three body parts. The last step of the sacrifices that take place in the consecration was to make an offering, and that's the last section we read, verses 22 through 25, the last section of the sacrifice. Verse 22, You shall also take the fat from the ram, And the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination and one cake of bread and one cake of bread mixed with oil and one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread, which is set before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall take them from their hands and offer them up in smoke on the altar, on the burnt offering for a soothing aroma before the Lord. It is an offering by fire to the Lord. So we need to get a good picture of what's actually happening here. In your mind's eye, imagine a ram has been slaughtered and the fat of that animal plus the right thigh is set aside. In verse 22, we're told it is a ram of ordination, or another way to say it is an offering to recognize the Lord for the privilege of serving him, for thanking him, for the privilege of serving him. The fat of that animal, or of any animal, was the most prized part of the animal in the ancient world. So I don't know how your view of fat is. Certainly there are plenty of diet gurus who would now make us turn our nose up at fat. But in the ancient world, it was by far the most favored part of the animal. It had the richest flavor. It was one of the few places in nature you could get oils and have that kind of oil for nourishing your body or for enhancing foods or for cooking. I mean, it was a very valuable item. And as such, it's the most valuable thing you could give back to God out of this animal. And then the right thigh would have been one of the best pieces of meat, and the right side of the animal, the honored side of the animal. So all of this is a picture of one giving the Lord the best. The Lord is receiving the best the priest could offer from the sacrifice they made. And to further signify that these things were being given up to the Lord in thanks, these men were to take these items in their hands and wave them literally in the air before the Lord. Wave them in the sky. Now that might seem a bit humorous to you in your mind's eyes. You try to imagine a bunch of guys standing out with all these pieces of animal carcass, waving them up in in the sky at no one apparently, but God watching from heaven. But it had a very serious message associated with it. These things belong to God. And since he is where he is and they are where they are and the two were not going to meet this side of the glorified body, the best they could accomplish was to make an apparent attempt to hand them to him and in a public sense demonstrate these are God's. These are not mine. Following the wave, those things then are completely burned up on the altar so as to make sure that no one but God has them. They were also mixed, as you noticed, with cakes, oil, and unleavened bread. Now, the cakes, the oil, and the unleavened bread all represent the fruit of the priest's ministry. The cake, or bread, represents the spiritual nourishment that the priesthood delivered to Israel. The oil represents the anointing that the priest delivered to other people, like prophets, like kings, or even later generations of priests. That transference, in other words, of God's anointing to someone else. And then the unleavened bread represents the sanctification, the removing of sin that the priests were intended to prompt in the life of Israel by the carrying out of their priestly duties within the context of the law and the tabernacle. So the fruit of the priesthood, if it's doing its job within Israel, should be the results of ministry in the lives of the people, in the way that they are helping dedicate people to the purpose that God has intended. And so those fruits, as represented by these items of food, are taken and waved before the Lord. Now, what does it mean to take the fruit of your ministry and wave it before the Lord? Again, it signifies that these belong to you. That the results of our work is God's results, not my own. The comparison to our priestly duties should be very clear. In our priestly work, we give all the glory to the Lord, both for what he provides in the form of our consecration as priests and our ability to serve at all is his doing. And then in the results of our work is his doing. Did someone we serve show fruit in their life? Did someone learn a spiritual truth from our teaching? Did we encourage or commission another person into their own form of ministry? Did we further the sanctification of a believer through prayer or counseling or by living as an example in their midst? Did we do those things? Well, if so, we turn to the Lord and we wave, so to speak, those things before him and in thanks, acknowledging that was his work, that it wasn't us doing it. We were simply the vessel, even the great apostle Paul, who if there ever was a man who could claim to have done great things for God, it certainly would have been Paul. And this is what Paul says about himself in first Corinthians fifteen ten, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And then again in first Corinthians three six, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. If Paul himself can step aside and give God credit for the results of his ministry, who are we to ever think we did anything of value for God? What we do is serve, and God does what he wishes with it. So that's the proper heart attitude that we should have as we seek to serve God's people. Finally, going back to Exodus 29 again, now we're going to see the priests receive their portion in payment for their work in the tabernacle. And that's in verse 26 through 34. God says, Then you shall take the breast of Aaron's ram of ordination, And wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. You shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering which are waved and which are offered from the ram of ordination from the one which was for Aaron and from the one which was for his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as their portion forever from the sons of Israel, for it is a heave offering and it shall be a heave offering from the sons of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offering, even their heave offering to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him, that in them they shall be anointed and ordained. For seven days the one of his sons who is priest in his stead shall put them on when he enters the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Thus, they shall eat these things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. If any of the flesh of ordination or any of the bread remains until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. So from that last ram, we're still talking about that second ram that was slaughtered. The breast now of that animal and the other thigh, the one that was not burned up with the fat, is saved for the priest's to consume. First, though, you notice the meat is taken and waved before the Lord again. Only this time, after the waving, they're allowed to eat it. Now, the point there should be clear enough. The priests are giving the Lord thanks for their portion. We bow our head and say, thank you, Lord, for the food, which I'm about to eat. Next time you're at home, try this. Tell your kids, pick up the pork chop and wave it at the ceiling. Your kids will love it. Mom may not, but you are acknowledging that it came from him. Secondly, we're told they have to boil it They can't prepare the meat any other way. They can't use fire. They have to boil it in water. Since we know by the way God has used the fire of the altar already, fire in the tabernacle has come to represent judgment. He doesn't want to take the offering that's being given to these men and confuse the images and confuse the symbols. So in this space, water is a sign of purity and cleansing and washing. So water is used to cook the meal, not fire, to maintain the sanctity of the image, of of the meaning of these images and not cross them. So the nourishment for God's people is not confused with sacrifice for sin. There was a sacrifice made of which we had no part. But there is a nourishing that is made for us on the basis of sacrificial service. We are sacrificing ourselves in the service of the priesthood. That sacrifice is returned by God with a nourishment or with a provision that he makes available. These are being kept very distinct in the symbols of the tabernacle. Also, the bread is being given to the priest. Some of that bread was preserved for them. But if anything is made available to the priest and they do not consume it that same day, it is not saved. The priests never get leftovers. They only get what's provided for them on that day. Now, the picture here for our provision should be clear enough. All priests serving in God's house expect the Lord to supply our provision. Now, this is where it gets important to remind ourselves, what is the New Testament priest? It is not clergy. There is no such thing as clergy. It is the believer. We're not talking about how our tithes help support our pastor. We're talking about our own individual needs being met by God as we serve God, rather than us thinking that we split our time between serving God or that you have some other method and you have to pick one, some division of sorts in your life. That's not the example of the New Testament Scripture. We have the expectation, according to Scripture, that we serve God with our whole body, our whole life. Remember the first ram, totally consumed on the altar. We hold nothing back from God. And doing that, knowing that he will not leave us without a provision so that we don't have to be distracted by our pursuit for our physical needs. In our world, I know many of us are employed. I'm employed. But that employment is not the problem. The issue is how we use our time vis-a-vis serving God. And our employment can be another venue in which we serve God. But is it? Many Christians will point out that it can be. I just question how many actually make it so. That's the test. If it is not so, then it needs to be made so. And it can be done in a myriad of ways. We're not saying how it looks. We're just saying how the heart is directed in that service. In this case, we receive the portion God has set aside for us as a function of our service. Our first responsibility, though, as we receive what he gives, is to acknowledge that that provision is from the Lord. We may not have to walk outside, as I said, and wave our pork chops at the sky. But there are other ways we can do that, and in our hearts, most of all. By the way, you can also dedicate some portion of what God returns to you as gifts back to the work of God in some other context. Don't call it a tithe. That's not the New Testament view. But you can take some of what God is giving you as a means of waving it, so to speak, by giving it back. And then finally, we don't rely on leftovers. God's provision shouldn't be supported in such a way that we become reliant on what we have stored up and saved rather than remaining reliant on future provision. We're not saying that saving is bad or that planning for the future is wrong. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. And I think it's easy enough to see in the lives of people we know or even in ourselves, when we cross the line between smart money management, if you want to call it that, and hoarding out of a fear that I won't have tomorrow what I need, which is a denial of God's promise to provide. Matthew is the place we go. Jesus says in Matthew 631, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all those other things will be added to you. Well, then the Lord tells Moses at the end of this ceremony to rinse and repeat. (laughs) Because the consecration ceremony goes on for seven days, as we said. Look at verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. You shall ordain them through seven days. Each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. So the ceremony is repeated every day for seven days. When you thought that your child's high school or college graduation ceremony went on too long, Can you imagine sitting through seven days of this ceremony just to get to the point where you are formally a priest? The point was, of course, to reinforce the meaning of all of these symbols, the importance of all that God is assigning to these people, the importance of the priesthood. I think it might be an interesting parallel for us if we could devise some lengthy ceremony for new believers that was, a consecration of sorts, ritually speaking, to prepare them for a life of serving God as a priest of God. Instead of us having clergy and laity, let's just make all of them clergy. Every new believer, for that's who they are. And do away with the laity. That's really the group we need to get rid of. So for the repetition to remind us, it has to be focused on the meaning of the symbols on service as a daily process on being called into service, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime on the calling being a permanent feature of our faith. Do you remember he said at the outset of this chapter that this was going to be a permanent or a lifelong consecration? Well, so is our service to God and what we are now called to do as well. Priests serve perpetually. There is no retirement from the priesthood of the believer. There's no downtime. Paul says in Romans 11:29, "The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable." Paul says in Philippians 3:13, "Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize" of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Press on. Live according to the standard to which we have attained. Or another way to say it is, live up to the righteousness of Christ which has been given to us. That's the priesthood's perpetual call. So every day we serve in God's house as the priests served in the tabernacle. We serve in a lifelong effort to please God by ministering to his people, just as the priests served Israel. Now, that's the consecration. That was that picture of how it represents our call as believers in the holy priesthood that we have today. Now, having consecrated the priests, then the Lord gives them their first daily duty. Look at to eight through 46. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar 2 one year old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and you shall offer it with the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. This is a conclusion to the consecration, but it forms an ongoing requirement. The priests have to perform every morning and every night for as long as the tabernacle stood a sacrifice of this lamb. They did this even on Sabbaths, by the way. So they never had a day they didn't do this. The two sacrifices were each a lamb. Now notice we've had bulls, we've had rams, now we have a lamb. While the bull is a picture of sin, The ram is a picture of God's atonement. The lamb, though, is a very specific picture in Scripture. It is a very specific picture of the Lamb of God, of Christ as the atonement, of him personally. As we saw in Revelation, the lamb standing as if slain is the way that Christ is described by John in the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5. So the priests maintain their consecration before God, their opportunity to serve in the tabernacle only so long as they continue this practice of beginning every day and ending every day with a service that pictures Christ. Likewise, we serve as priests, but only so long as everything we do begins and ends with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. and in First Corinthians two verse one, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So as we serve as priests in whatever capacity, based on whatever gifting, or whatever station of life we're in, whatever context we work in, we all have the same responsibility to start and end our ministry on the same note. We preach and we live the gospel of Christ. We speak and we teach of Christ. We rest in, we abide in Christ. Just like the priests of Israel in the tabernacle, our only purpose in service is found in testifying to Christ. Now, they may not have understood, in all cases that what they were doing in their practicing of their rituals was they were testifying publicly to Christ and all that they were doing. But rest assured, that is what they were doing. And we, likewise, may not always think that we are testifying to Christ, but that should be what we are thinking, and that should be what we are doing. Our focus and our concern should be on advancing the glory of Christ. Our mission is not to glorify or advance our denomination or our church. It is not to have followers of a pastor or a teacher. It is not to become advocates for a system or a program or a methodology or an activity. It is to be a representative for Christ. And if in our activities we have not found a way to make the two connect, there's something wrong with what we're doing or how we're doing it. So a summary of the priestly service is now in order. The priesthood of the believer begins with an acknowledging of sin daily in humility, putting away sins and pursuing service and purity, making ourselves a living sacrifice to the Lord, serving by the blood of Christ, the one who calls us and will judge us for our service, giving the Lord the glory for the fruit of our ministry, depending on the Lord for our provision, serving perpetually, serving persistently, and remaining focused on Christ day and night. That is the picture that's formed through all of what's done in the consecration for the priests. All right, now we're going to go through the last two pieces of furniture. Let's go forward into chapter 30. We're not going to do the whole chapter. That was never the intent. We're just going to do the parts of the chapter that relate to the last two pieces of furniture. So let's look at first the altar of incense. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit. Its width a cubit. It shall be square and its height shall be two cubits. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around and its horns and you shall make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding and you shall make them as its two side walls on opposite sides and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offerings or meal offerings. You shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The altar of incense is constructed very similar to what we've seen already in the holy place. Wood overlaid with gold. It's about three feet high, and about 18 inches square. Probably not much different in size than this lectern. Just a lot prettier. It had horns on all four corners, like the altar of offering outside, and those horns were anointed with blood on occasion. It had those poles that were used to carry it, as we've already heard. The poles also were overlaid with gold. The burning inside it was made possible by coals that were brought from outside in the altar of sacrifice into the holy place, and they became the fire that started the incense burning. This piece of furniture is the one closest to the veil in the holy place, not though in the holy of holies. So if we look at the diagram of the holy place, this is the piece of furniture that's set just opposite the veil right before you would walk into the holy of holies. That's what you would see. Now, this piece of furniture is one of the clearest illustrations of Christ among any of the pieces of furniture you have in the entire tabernacle. It relates directly to the priestly duty over the people. The high priest would burn incense in this altar twice every day. The smoke of the incense, based on where this thing was placed, the smoke would waft and find its way behind the curtain, behind the veil, and into the Holy of Holies. So that was a way of signifying that the priest of Israel, the high priest, brought the needs or concerns of Israel to this altar. They were then burned symbolically, lifted up as smoke, as if to going to God, and they found their way into the Holy of Holies where God was in his Shekinah glory. So it completed the the picture of... The high priest interceding, acting as an intermediary between the needs of the people and God who took the requests. It's all symbolic, but that symbol, like everything else, is pointing to Christ. Jesus, we know already, is our high priest. And Jesus has taken his place today in the tabernacle in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. He lives, we're told, to bring intercession for the sake of God's people. And that intercession, that opportunity to be up there right now interceding, was made possible by Christ's work on the cross, which the altar in the courtyard pictures. So because of the fire on the altar in the courtyard, you have burning on the altar of incense inside the holy place. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you have Jesus now in God's presence interceding. The two are connected in that same way. And the position of the altar being so near the ark But on our side of the veil, so to speak, is a picture of Jesus accessible to us, but representing us to the Father. Now, of course, the veil has been rent, has been removed altogether in the sense that we do not have to wait once a year for Christ to make that intercession. He's able to make that intercession continually on our behalf. And we can approach God directly through our own priesthood, not through some other. Finally, notice this altar will never have any other type of offering made upon it but the incense. No meat, no drink, nothing else. Further proof that once Jesus had died and then ascended into the holy place of heaven, no more sacrifice, no more offering is needed in order to reach God, in order for our intercession to be happening. One sacrifice for all, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. So now the only thing at the altar is incense. The only thing we need is prayer or approach to Christ. Moving forward just a little more. Verse 11. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 gerahs. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from twenty years old and over, shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. This is the collection that was taken up in order to maintain the tabernacle. Think of this as a tax for maintenance on the tabernacle. But it's not prescribed to happen on any regular routine. Only when you do a census, whenever you have reason to count, then take it. What it turned into was an annual temple tax by the time Jesus walked the earth. But it was not done by a prescription of annually. It was done as a function of the census. Now, why was it connected to the census? Because if you're going to count who is God's people, then those people must be covered by way of an atonement or they are not truly God's people. And that's the part we talked about earlier in our study when we looked at the silver that was contained in the foundation of the tabernacle. And you can go back to that, revisit that teaching if you want to learn more of that. But for now, we need to finish. So the last piece for the night is the last piece of furniture. And then after we're done with this, I have an interesting little wrap-up summary of all the furniture that I think you'll enjoy. Verse 17 through 21. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, you shall also make a labor of bronze and its base of bronze for washing and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die and it shall be a perpetual statute for them for Aaron and his descendants. Throughout their generations. The seventh and the last piece of furniture in the tabernacle is this bronze or brass laver. Once again, this item is connected to their priestly service. That's why it was reserved for now. The basin, as we said already, was brass or bronze. And it had a base, so it's raised up above the ground. It's placed between the altar and the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And the overall design here of the laver was only in what we've read, so we really don't know what it looked like. The pattern Moses followed was probably what he saw when he was up on the mountain, but not what was written here. We are already told the priests wash there before they can do any of their service of ministry. In verse 19, you may have noticed, it says they wash from the water in the basin. In Hebrew, that suggests very strongly they didn't actually put any body parts inside this labor. They took the water out of it and washed themselves with some other means. What is the washing for? Well, it is a requirement of service, or else they're penalized with their life. That high standard helps cement a picture for us here. It's a picture of sanctification. As we've seen clearly already, the priesthood of Israel is a picture of believers serving God in God's house, right? Well, the labor completes that picture for us, puts the last piece into the picture. The washing of the water is a means of cleansing the priests ritually, from their sin, that ritual pictures the literal washing of our bodies from sin through the sanctification that's made possible by the Spirit. And how does the Spirit accomplish the work of sanctification in each of us as we go about our spiritual duties as priests? First and foremost, through the Word of God. Secondly, through the work of the Spirit to convict us by the Word. Thirdly, by our application of what we are being convicted of and by what we are learning. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle of any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So here's the picture forming for the believer. The principal means of sanctifying the believer is through service. How did the priests of the priesthood of Israel have opportunity to go to the laver and wash. Only when they were serving. Right before a sacrifice. Right before an offering. Right before they entered the tent. If they stopped serving, they stopped washing. How does the believer wash? How are we sanctified? We are sanctified through our service. Just as the priests wash regularly, we wash regularly in the Spirit, by His Word, when we serve. You cannot mature if you outsource your sanctification to someone else by allowing someone else to do the work of service in the body of Christ while you sit and watch them serve. We are all served by someone, but we are all to serve someone. If we do not serve, we do not mature, we do not wash, we do not sanctify. The final step of our sanctification is achieved by our glorification by God's power to bring us to that point. We will all have to be fully sanctified to be in God's presence one day but we are called and commissioned to seek that outcome in our daily life even now as a means of serving God, of obedience to God's word. So this puts an end then to our conversation about what is in the tabernacle and how it compares to Christ. As we come to an end, we find this interesting visual pattern that's created by the placement of all seven items of furniture in the tabernacle. Let's take another view of the tabernacle from on high with the various pieces now in their respective locations, the altar and the laver and the Ark of the Covenant are all in perfect alignment east to west, while about one-third or so along the way from one end of the line you find the lamp and the table of showbread standing opposite one another in another line running north-south. If you connect all seven pieces of furniture with lines, the result is this. They arrange themselves perfectly as a cross, and the furniture then is arranged to prefigure the cross of Christ. And look at the meaning of each of these items in this cross. Christ is our sacrifice on the altar. Christ is our sanctification at the labor. Christ is our intercession at the altar of incense. Christ is our light as we walk in the counsel of his word. Christ is our bread as he feeds us by that word. And Christ becomes our righteousness for us. Further evidence that the tabernacle is a picture of Christ. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the picture, but we thank you more for the reality that we have in Christ. And we thank you for the privilege to be born in this age, to be among those who see in the fullness of Christ and not in the picture alone, not in the portions but in the whole. And yet we see not everything yet, Father, as Paul tells us. There is still more to be understood, and some you will grant us now. The rest will come as we see you face to face. We pray with what you have given us, we will be good stewards. We will put it to work in our hearts first, in our service second, and in our witness always, so that we may be counted worthy of what has been entrusted to us. We ask for this study to continue, for our faith to continue, for our service to continue, for our witness to grow, and for our Lord to return soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.